Merry Christmas. I am Brian Legg. I'm one of the pastors on our lead pastor team here. Glad that you came to worship with us this morning. How many of you are ready for Christmas? Completely ready, like all your grocery shopping done, all your Christmas presents wrapped under the tree, ready to go. The house is clean and ready for company. How many? One, two, four, five. Wow. The rest of you are in trouble, like me, because I'm not completely ready either. Don't you love this time of the year, though, getting ready for Christmas? I don't know about you guys, but I'm like a little kid when it comes to Christmas. I can't wait for Christmas Day to be able to see everything that everybody's gotten and just go through all the stuff. And I love it how my kids line up at the top of the stairs. We've got a two-story house, and so we won't let them come downstairs until we're set and ready, you know. And they, they line up, and the, the anticipation's building, and they're ready to go. And I go downstairs, and I take my time getting my coffee... And I get the lights adjusted on the tree just right. And, you know, you get everything set up. Well, wait, I've got to get the video camera. And I just antagonize the stew out of my kids on Christmas morning. Anybody else do that? Don't tell my kids I said that. I think a couple of them are in here. Anyway, that's one of the joys of Christmas. And I love Christmas time and doing all those things. But here's what I love more. My kids, as much as they're excited on Christmas morning and as much as they're looking forward to getting all the gifts and doing all those things, it's my girls who often are the ones to remind Sherry and I on Christmas Eve, hey, let's sit down and read the Christmas story. Let's talk about why Jesus came and how we celebrate Christmas. And Christmas morning, they started this tradition with Sherry to where they bake a birthday cake for Jesus, and it's their yearly tradition, something they do every time. And I don't have to remember any of it. They do it. And I think that's why Jesus said a lot of times that we should come to God with a faith like a child because they come with that true sense of understanding of what Christmas is about and why we celebrate the things we do. Sure, they love the presents, they love the gifts, they love all the traditions, but they get the reason that we celebrate too. And it's so easy for us to forget about that. And that's kind of what we've been talking about in this series. We're asking the question, what if? What if Christmas had never come? How would our lives be different if Christmas hadn't happened, that first Christmas? And so we started off, I think it was three weeks ago, talking about Joseph and looking at the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph and talking about what if he had had to have everything make sense? What if he hadn't just been obedient when the angel came to him? What if he had to get it all figured out before he did what God told him? And then the next week we talked about the innkeeper. And as we looked at the innkeeper, we talked about what would it have been like if the innkeeper had actually brought Mary and Joseph in? If he had given them a room, if he had taken care of them and helped them through the birth process, and what would it look like for us if we made room for Jesus? And then last week, Stivey talked about the shepherds. And what would it have been like if the shepherds were too unclean to come to Jesus? What if they hadn't been able to come and be a part of that first Christmas because they had that filthy job and they weren't ceremonially clean? And for you and I, what would it be like if we had to get our junk cleaned up in order to come to Jesus? So this week we want to talk about the story from the perspective of the wise men. And the question we're going to ask this morning is, what if the wise men had never bowed? What if they had never bowed? And for you and I, I want to ask the question, what if we were humble enough to bow before Jesus this Christmas season? So there's the context that we're going to walk through as we jump into this story this morning and talk about these different things. Now this morning's story comes from Matthew chapter 2, so if you want to grab your Bibles or if you have your phone or however you want to follow along, starting in verse 2, excuse me, starting in verse 1, chapter 2 of Matthew, we've got 12 verses we're going through this morning. Compared to two weeks ago, when I talked to you about the innkeeper, we had one verse. Now keep in mind, I talked for about 30 or 35 minutes that morning on one verse. We got 12 this morning, so I hope you came prepared. Wow, not a single reaction. Y'all ready to stay here all day? 
All right. Let's jump in and read through the story, and then I want to pick some things apart, and we're going to explore it. And I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. Those of you who are like my wife, and you have to fill in every blank on the sheet, I promise the slides are there, the answers will be there, I'll get them for you. But there's a lot of stuff I want to cram into today, so I may be jumping back and forth. So if I don't go in order, please don't hold it against me. Just fill in the blanks as you see them come up, okay? Here we go, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars that rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, For this is what the prophet wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me, so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. They went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy, and they entered into the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Okay, let's pick some things apart here. First, I want to talk about who these wise men are. The wise men are often called magi, depending on the version of the Bible you have. And I want to give you a little bit of the history of the magi, and just kind of go with me this morning, because... This is one of those stories where there's tons of interpretations, there's tons of people who have all these different ideas about who the wise men were, where they came from, what they were about, how they got their information, and you can research for days and days and days and never come to an exact conclusion. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to take you on a journey of how I think it might have happened. Okay, so just go with me in this. The Magi were really a group of priests who came from the, the empire of Persia. And so you've got to understand first, Persia was like the only empire that was threatening Rome. Rome at the time had taken over this area of Jerusalem. They had come in, they had put King Herod into place, and King Herod declares himself king of the Jews because he's ruling over this Jewish nation. But in reality, he's not even fully Jewish, and he's been put in place by the Romans, so he's kind of this pseudo-king, you might say. And you have this Persian group called the Magi, who I think actually dated back several hundred years to the time of Daniel. You remember Daniel from the Old Testament? You know, Daniel in the lion's den? Anybody remember Daniel? You are not participating very good this morning. We're going to have to work on this. Daniel and the lion's den, you remember that story? And Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fiery furnace. The same Daniel who refused to stop praying to his God. The same Daniel who refused to eat the king's food. That's why he was thrown into the lion's den. But here's the crazy thing. Even after being thrown into the lion's den, he survives and he comes out of that. And he comes to a point where he wins favor with the king. And he wins favor with the king not just because he survived the lions, but because of his unique ability to interpret dreams. And he was able to interpret the dreams of the king, and the king went, wow, you can tell me what my dreams mean. And so he puts him in charge of this group of priests in the Persian Empire called the Magi. So fast forward a few hundred years, you've got this group of Magi that are still priests in the Persian Empire, and they play several different roles. They're known for their study of astro astrology, which is how they play into knowing the star and being able to follow the star. 
But the bigger thing they're known for, their biggest skill set, was the ability to interpret dreams. Isn't that interesting? So these Persian priests have one specific skill that they bring, one specific responsibility that they bring to the empire. And they are the king makers of the Persian empire. Now what this means is they are the highest form of authority in the Persian empire. Persia would go in and conquer, and they were conquering everybody at this time. It was later known as the Parthian Empire, but even through all of that, the Persians would come in and they would conquer everybody they came up against. And as they would conquer an area, these, these magi would come in, these Persian kingmakers, and they would place a king in authority over that region. And so these guys are the guys that the kings bow to. I mean, they are the guys of ultimate authority in the world right now. And they come onto the picture, and they're coming to visit Herod. They're coming into Jerusalem. And we have this very unique story taking place. And here's your blanks, so you can get those filled out. I told you, I'm going to skip right through them. So those of you who want to fill in blanks, grab them quick. The Magi were likely part of a Persian priesthood that carried the duty of choosing the king of each, of the per- of each area that the Persians controlled. Now, our tradition tells us this. Our tradition tells us that there were three wise men, right? They brought the beautiful gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we have these three beautifully, beautifully dressed guys coming in in robes, riding on a camel to see Jesus. Right? I don't think so. I think in reality, when the Magi showed up, there was probably at least 12 of them, if not more, who showed up at the same time. I think tradition has told us that there were three of them because there were three gifts that Matthew signified. And so we've, we've just decided that there must have been three of them. I think it goes even further than that, though. Think about who these guys were. They were the most important of the important. These were the elite guys in the government system. They had all the power, all the authority, all the control. They're leaving Persia and coming into a Roman-controlled area who is their arch enemy. Now, do you think three guys on camels are going to ride into Rome when they're the enemy, unprotected? Would you? I think they came in with a whole entourage, probably as many as a 1,000 men who were heavily armed and ready for battle. Now step back a second and put yourself in Herod's shoes. Here's Herod, self-proclaimed king of the Jews, put in place by the Romans, overseeing Jerusalem. All the Jews hate him because he's not even fully Jewish and he mistreats them. So none of them like him, and he's trying to protect his position. And here come these Persian kingmakers, the Magi, with their entourage of military convoy into the area. And what's the first question they ask Herod? Where is this newborn king of the Jews? Now think about that a second. That could be received as kind of a calculated insult if you're Herod. You're not really the king of the Jews, but yet you proclaimed yourself that way. And here come the guys who have the power to overthrow you and put a new king in place. And the first question they ask is, who is this newborn king of the Jews? Where is he so that we can go and worship him? Now think about that. If this was three guys with camels... Do you think Herod's upset? Do you think he's bothered? If this was three guys on camels like all of our pretty little nativity sets show, do you think Jerusalem was disturbed? Look at the very next thing. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everybody in Jerusalem. Three guys on camels don't scare me, much less Jerusalem. But an entourage of a thousand guys, heavily armed, coming in from the nation who is our sworn enemy, that changes things a little, doesn't it? Now, some of you are sitting there looking in shock because I just messed up your pretty little nativity picture. But guess what? When you set up your nativity, in reality, the wise men should be way over on the other side of the mantle somewhere because they're still traveling trying to get there. We're going to get to that in a little bit. 
Now let's walk through this. Think about what Herod's response would be. Herod's a pseudo-king. He's not really king. He's just been put in a position of authority, and he's trying to protect it. And they're asking, who's this king of the Jews? Well, of course, how's he going to respond? He immediately begins to put this self-preservation plan into place. He's coming up with ways, how do I protect my throne? How do I make sure that I get to hold this position as king? How do I make sure that this new king of the Jews they're talking about doesn't take my place? And so he's immediately scheming and trying to come up with ways to get around it. The first thing he does is he goes to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, and he says, tell me about this. You know, what, what do the good books tell us about the, the coming of the Messiah? When is he coming? Where is he coming? What is going on with all this? And the Sanhedrin respond, and they quote Micah 5.2, the prophecy of the Old Testament, saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so he knows where he's going to be born. Well, guess what? They're in Jerusalem. You know how far away they are from Bethlehem? Five miles. Five miles. Now, granted, they didn't have a car, so they couldn't just hop in and run over five minutes. But five miles, I can walk that far. You can get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem easily. And what happens here? You have Herod talking to the Sanhedrin, and they tell him where it's going to happen. He realizes it's really close, and he immediately starts to put his plan into place, and he goes back to the Magi and says, okay, well, tell me when you go and find him. Come back and tell me about it so that I can go and worship him. See, the reality is Herod didn't want to worship him. Herod was already thinking about, how do I kill him? How do I make sure that he doesn't make it to this position of king? How do I make sure he doesn't take my place? He starts to ask them about the time frame. When did you first see this star? When did this happen? When did that happen? He's trying to figure out his plan of what he has to do. And you'll see later in the story how he goes out and he kills all the Jewish boys, age two and under, in that area, trying to make sure that his position is secured. Now, some perspective on Herod. Herod was a really, really nice guy. Okay, not really. Herod married at least nine wives that we know of, and he was very politically adept, I guess we should say, in the wives that he married. Not only did he marry them because of his lustful desires, but he also married strategic wives based on the nations they came from so that he would have good allies and good people to defend his borders and make sure that his kingdom was protected. He had a lot of kids, And then at one point in Herod's life, he decided that his wife and some of his kids were trying to oust him from his position as king. They were committing treason in his mind, so he killed them all. Now, how would you like to be married to that guy? He's got nine wives. He's not afraid to kill you, and he'll kill all your kids too. Great guy, right? He lived his entire life in fear, in complete paranoia. He built these huge fortresses all around Israel. You can still go and visit them today. I got to see Masada when I was there before, and it's this beautiful fortress on the top of a mountain. And I love the picture of that because you can see all around you. But when you stop and you think about why Herod built it, he's building all these fortresses just to protect his position because he's scared to death that somebody's going to come in and overthrow him. In fact, I would encourage you guys, if you haven't heard this before, we're taking a trip to Israel in December. We're going to be taking a group from the church. And I would encourage you, if you're able to go, sign up for that trip. It'll be a wonderful time. You'll get to see some of these places, see them come to life. But here's Herod, who's scared to death. He's in panic mode. He's paranoid. He's afraid that his throne's going to be overthrown. And of course, he goes into this mode where he's trying to preserve his position and keep his place. But what about the Sanhedrin? Because they play a big role in this too. You know, Herod goes to them and asks them the question, and they've got all the answers. They know the stories. They know what signs they're supposed to be looking for. They know what's happening. They know where the Messiah is going to be born. They have the scripture memorized. They didn't have to look in their books to be able to quote Micah 
They just turn to him and tell him because they know it all. And again, they're five miles away from Bethlehem. And what do they do? They just stick their head in the sand. They ignore it completely. They just act like, well, maybe if we don't admit that the Messiah has come, you know, nothing will really change and we won't lose our position because these are guys who have this great leadership. They have great control over the king. He's coming to them for advice. They're seen as the spiritual advisors of the day. And so they're thinking about the Messiah coming and going, we're going to lose our position. We're going to lose the authority we have. We're going to lose the respect we have because he's going to be greater than us. And so they take a position of going, well, maybe we'll just ignore it and he'll go away. Maybe we won't have to pay attention to it. The Sanhedrin knew all the prophecies. They saw all the signs. These guys were smart. They had it together. You can't convince me they didn't know what was going on. And they choose to just completely ignore the birth of the Messiah. So go back to the Magi. They're continuing their journey. Pick it up in verse 9 with me. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. How many of you have seen a star that goes ahead of you and stops over a place for you to know where to go? Have you ever seen that? Nobody? You don't have those kinds of stars in your backyard or that take you to Burger King or anything like that? Think about that. Guys have tried to explain the star away for years and years and years. Theologians have come up with all these different ideas. Scientists have worked on it. And they've talked about how the planets crossed and this happened and that. It's all junk. There's no way. It was an absolute supernatural phenomenon. And I think in reality that star was actually the Shekinah glory of God that was guiding the wise men to that place. When you do the research and you start to look at it, this star was traveling in a different direction than stars ever travel. Stars don't move like that where you can follow them. They definitely don't stop over a place. There was something completely supernatural about this star. Look at what else in the story. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy, and they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice the location that they're going to. It doesn't say anything about the wise men going to the stable or going to the place where there was no room in the inn, or going to the barn, or going to the cave, or any of those things. It says they went to the house where they were located. See, Mary and Joseph had already had time at this point to establish themselves, to get their own place, to be out on their own. The other thing that's important to notice here is they refer to Jesus as a child at this point. And it's a very different Greek word. Earlier in Scripture, you see the word infant used in reference to Jesus, and this is the word specifically for child. So at this point, Jesus is likely a toddler or maybe even a little bit older than that. We think he's about two years of age or a little younger. And so the wise men are coming to the house of Mary and Joseph to see Jesus, the child. We'll call him a two-year-old for lack of better understanding at this point, okay? And how do the Magi respond? What do they do? They walk into the house, they see the child with his mother Mary, a two-year-old, and they bow down and worship him. The Greek word for bow down here is pipto. Pipto. And it means to fall down, to prostrate oneself, to be destroyed. That's strong language. To die, to become inadequate. Think about it in perspective. Think about who the Magi are. These are the guys who don't bow to anyone. The kings bow to the Magi. The Magi are all-powerful in their nation. And they come and they stand before a two-year-old and they throw themselves before him in complete 
submission, and surrender. Doesn't that give a little perspective? Let me give you a little more perspective. The same word that's used here is the word that's used when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he's standing and talking to his father and he says, if you can, take this cup from me. But if not, I submit to your will. It's the same word that's used there, pipto, to where he's surrendering his will completely. He's throwing himself before his father, surrendering to his father's control. And that's what the wise men, the magi, are doing here to Jesus, to a toddler. They're throwing themselves before him, surrendering completely. You receive the power and the glory, not us. It's a whole different perspective, isn't it? Now, step back from the story a little bit, kind of a 50,000-foot view, just looking down on what's happening. You really have three groups of characters in the story. You've got Herod, who just completely rejects Jesus. He rejects the Messiah altogether. He's fighting back against him. He's taking an aggressive approach going, how do I get rid of this guy? How do I make sure that my throne is safe? How do I make sure that I keep my position? He's willing to kill his wife, his kids, anybody that gets in his way, he's going to make sure that he's king. Then you have the Sanhedrin. And they're not so blatant in their rejection, but they basically just choose to ignore. They've got all the information. They know the entire story. They know everything about it. They see all the signs. They know what's happening. And they stick their head in the sand and they go, well, not happening to me. I don't know what you're talking about. And they just let it go by. And then you have the Magi. The guys who truly have authority. The guys who are important. The guys who are in power. And they humble themselves to a position of laying on the ground before a two-year-old and saying, you are the king of the Jews. We've come to worship you and give you gifts. And they bring him amazing gifts that represent his kingship. And there was probably much more than those three that are mentioned, but those are the things that Matthew mentioned because they were so prophetic of who Jesus would be and who he would become and what he was going to do. And so I think the real question we need to ask this morning is this. Are we bowing before Jesus? Are you bowing before Jesus? Are you coming like the Magi to where you will throw yourself at his feet and put yourself before him in humble submission with the heart of a servant and surrender everything to him and trust him completely? Have you completely surrendered your heart? See, if you're like me, you listen to these stories and you listen to how all this unfolded and you go, man, that's cool stuff. I want to go study. I want to hear about that. I want to read about it and get more information. But when you start to put yourself in the story, you go, well, I don't really fit there because I'm not like Herod. I don't kill my wife. I don't kill my kids. I'm not killing other people or trying to be king or trying to be in charge of all that. Really? See, I'd say we would say that. And yeah, we don't act exactly like Herod. Maybe we're not quite as paranoid. Maybe we're not quite as aggressive in our approach. But how many times do we try to hold on to our stuff and hold on to our position and hold on to who we want to be or who we think we are. How many times do we get caught in that trap? See, I look at Herod, and Herod was a guy who was scared to death. He lived with fear, paranoia, depression. He, he went through the, the whole gamut of emotions, and his whole life was tortured. And I would suggest that some of us live the same way. We live in constant fear. We live battling insecurities every single day. And allowing those things to control our decisions and to control our actions and to dictate who we are. Herod's life was tormented almost as much as his death. 
He died one of the most excruciating, painful deaths ever recorded. And I really think that most of his death came because of the way he lived his life. You think your emotions aren't tied to your physical body? Go through depression for a long time and see what it does to you. Your physical health will start to fail too. Worry about something over and over and over and over for a long period of time and see what happens. There's a reason people battle stress and get ulcers and have all these other things that happen in their body. Our mental health and our physical health are connected. And Herod struggled throughout his life with his mental health. And then he died a terrible death. And he had no idea that he was on that road because he couldn't see the destruction that was laid ahead of him. Are we really any different? What about the Sanhedrin? Surely we're not like them. I mean, we're, we're not ignoring Jesus, right? We're here at church. We've come to hear about him. We're not ignoring him. But do we live our lives that way? See, I think a lot of times we live our lives in such a way that we keep doing what we want to do and we ignore the things that God's saying to us because we don't want to change who we are. And we don't want to change the way we approach life. And we don't want to think about things any different. The Sanhedrin knew the whole story. They knew the prophecies. They saw the signs. They had all the information they needed. And they ignored it. How are you and I any different? We've got all the information we need. It's right here. Where's Charles? Charles, hold up your Bible. You want to read a real Bible? You can grab this one. He walked in with that thing this morning. Somebody gave it to him and went, I'm going to take that on stage. That's a Bible. That thing will preach. But seriously, we have all the information we need. We've got the story in front of us. We know how Jesus came to earth. We know how he lived his life. We know the ministry that he had. We know how he died for us. And we know how the story ends. We know that in the end we win if we're trusting in him and following after him. And yet even knowing all of that stuff, does it change us? Does it change the way we live our lives? Does it change the things that are important to us? Does it change our priorities? Does it change the way we even view Christmas? Or are you like me and you still get stuck in those ruts of being worried about all the other things and trying to ignore the things God's telling us so that we can keep doing life the way we've always done life or the way we want to do it? Then you have the Magi. These guys didn't have to bow before anyone, but they chose to bow. They chose to throw themselves prostrate before him. They chose to die to self. They chose to give up their own authority and their own rights and everything that belonged to them so that they could lay at the feet of Jesus and surrender their hearts to him. And they present their gifts as humbly as they possibly can. And God used them in a powerful way. You know, it's commonly thought that the gifts that the Magi brought to Jesus are what allowed Mary and Joseph to move to Egypt to get away from Herod and to live there for the season that they were in Egypt. Think about how God used these guys. Not Christians. They've come from a conquering nation. And they're battling and figuring out other religions, but they're on, a, on this mission of self-discovery or on a mission of discovery of Christ. They see something's happening. They've heard all these things from Daniel. They've heard the prophecies. They've heard that the Messiah is going to come. And they see this amazing light, and they follow it, and they go, we've got to figure this thing out. We've got to find out what's happening. I want to be a part of this. And when they come face to face with Jesus, as a toddler, they lay before him. So the real question for us is this. What if you chose to humble yourself enough to bow 
And think of what that word means there, pipto. To surrender your heart completely, to lay prostrate before, to die, to be inadequate, to take a position of a servant. What if you chose to bow before the King of Kings? How would that change the way you look at life? How would it change the way you look at this Christmas? Man, you guys can go ahead and come up. You know, there's an interesting thing about this. I told you at the beginning that these Persian um, priests, these magi, they were known for their skill to interpret dreams. In verse 12, at the end of this passage, it talks about how God spoke to them through a dream. He knew what they were good at. He knew how they were going to hear his voice, and he spoke to them in that way. And that was what told them not to go back to Herod, but to go a different direction. And see, I think it's the same for you and me. I think God is still speaking all the time to our hearts. And he speaks in all kinds of different ways, but he speaks in a way that you and I hear and understand. He doesn't hide it from us. He doesn't keep us from knowing what he wants. He speaks to us like we're going to hear, just like he spoke to the Magi in a dream. Maybe he speaks to you through his word. Maybe he speaks to you through a friend. Maybe he speaks to you just in quiet. But I think he speaks to all of our hearts. And the question for us is, what position will we take? Will we take the position like Herod and just reject what he says? Will we take the position like the Sanhedrin and just ignore it completely? Or will we take the position of the Magi and bow before him and surrender our heart and give up on our own stuff and trust him with everything? Trust him with our hurts, trust him with our insecurities, trust him with our fears, trust him with our physical stuff, trust him with our families, Trust Him with our lives. Which one will you be? Will you reject or ignore? Or will you bow? That's the question before us today. So I want to leave you with that thought. This Christmas, will you be humble enough to bow before the King and to surrender your heart completely to Him and His will? Would you stand and let's pray. God, we just thank you that you love us so greatly. God, I thank you that you sent your Son to live among us and to model for us what your love looked like. And I thank you of how you've revealed yourself through this story of the Magi as we read it and, and to be able to see the picture of how they bowed before you and, and submitted their lives to you. A simple obedience, a simple recognition of position putting you in that place of priority. Help us to do the same. Help us to let go of the things that, that hold us back. Help us to let go of the fears and the insecurities and the, the struggles that we face and to trust you fully in every aspect of our lives. Help us to honor you with the way we humble ourselves before you. Speak to our hearts now. In your name we pray. Amen.